Welcome to the Icelandic Roots podcast, where we explore the rich and vibrant culture of Iceland, from its stunning natural wonders to its unique traditions and customs. We dive into the heart of what makes Iceland, Western Iceland, and New Iceland so special. Join us on a journey through the land of fire and ice, where the northern lights dance in the sky and the glaciers meet the sea. We'll meet local experts and hear their stories and discover the music, art, literature that defines Icelandic culture. So sit back, relax, and let's immerse ourselves in the beauty of Iceland. Talk Fyrir. Today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, one of our fellow Snorri participants, um, Eric Schoonover. He is a geologist and, of course, you know, one of our fellow Icelanders who took part on our trip. Eric, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me, everyone. It's so good to see everyone. Uh, I am currently a PhD candidate at Penn State University. Uh, I am a igneous petrologist. That means I study magmatic and volcanic rocks. Uh, so you might know that Iceland is essentially made up of magmatic and volcanic rocks. So from the science side, it was quite a pleasure to go and visit the thing I see in textbooks, Iceland. Uh, but from the cultural side, my grandmother was actually born and raised in Iceland and then immigrated to the United States in the 1960s. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of what brought me on the Snorri trip and both professional and cultural. Awesome. Eric? My first question for you is what actually got you initially interested in geology? Did you play with rocks a lot as a kid? How did this career path come about? So the fun part was actually... Was the sandbox your favorite spot? <laughs> uh, I actually never collected rocks as a kid. Never, like, that was just not something I did. I was actually a chemistry major. I loved, like, mixing things and seeing what colors I could make. Um, so I was a kid that took all, like, the cleaning solutions and probably shouldn't have been mixing them. But alas, I was a chemistry kid. Um, and then... When I got into college, I saw that I could go take a field trip to go see the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, um, where there's a lot of beautiful waterfalls, beaches, cliffs, all these crazy geology things. And I went on the trip and learned how geology is actually a lot more of a logic puzzle, trying to figure out how did a rock get placed where it was. Um, and it's a big tangible science. Like you go outside and there's the rock. When actually chemistry is a lot of just, you got to believe it's happening and it takes a lot of special equipment to actually see what's going on. So I liked the tangibility of it. I liked the logic puzzle behind it. And that was really what sent me in college was, oh, well, maybe I could take what I've learned in chemistry and apply it to geology. And now I do geochemistry in uh, graduate school. Yeah, no, that's uh, very cool. Uh, and I'm sure, and as you've expressed to us, getting to know you on the Snorri program, that was a big driver in doing the Snorri program was being able to go to Iceland, which is one of the biggest hotspots for geology. Um, so maybe if you could share some stories about your experience on Snorri and different insights you got about geology while you were there, different ideas you had, things that you were inspired by while you were in Iceland, the very hotspot. So, uh, yeah, Jack's joke there is great. Uh, Iceland sits atop a anomalously warm part of the mantle. So the inner part of the earth is the mantle, and it's extremely hot in just this locality just under Iceland, thus a hot spot, um, which gives a lot of weird geological features. Um, 
being in Iceland was crazy. I think you guys have mentioned this before, but you step outside and it's just a whole other world. The rocks are different. It smells different. Um, and even from the scientific side, it's different. It is expressed as a unique locality in all the textbooks, all the classes, and being able to see that there are just textbook volcanic rock samples that they line the streets with. It's just everywhere. So it was really cool to see these textures, features, things that I had to study and got tested on in class just out in the open. And so that was really fun for me. And especially since it was a casual setting, I wasn't there to collect rocks or do geology. I was there to learn about my history. And so that was a really nice way for me to convey the knowledge that I had learned uh, to a relatively unsuspecting group that didn't know much about geology is so fun to explain it and be asked, oh, what is this rock? What is this rock? What is this rock? And be able to share my knowledge with everyone. Um, as for inspiration, actually, I am doing a study now on very specific minerals from Iceland, trying to figure out why is Iceland so unique? How does it? How do the rocks that form there actually form? How does it change the chemistry of these rocks? And how does that compare to other areas in the globe? And then also other times throughout Earth's history. So that was a big part of some of my time in Iceland. I took that back to graduate school and I'm doing professional research on it now. Yeah, very cool. You certainly became like our impromptu geologist on the program, which was a lot of fun. And I learned about the world of geology puns from you, which is also very magnificent. Jack, you need to leave the puns to the professionals. <laughs> That's uh, incredible. I was, yeah, I was just going to commend you on that. Uh, not only were you a stand-up guy on the Snorri trip, and uh, it was a genuine pleasure to spend that time together. Uh, not only just learning about rocks, but also exploring all of Iceland. Um, but also during the rocks, I would have known nothing had you not been standing beside me talking my ear off everywhere we went. And uh, especially now that it's done, I'm definitely grateful to have listened to you that whole time because I got to kind of learn exactly what was going on and like how old certain parts of the island are and how it's so totally different from other parts of it. So yeah, that was certainly interesting to uh, hear all, all that you had to say during that trip. I appreciate that. It was fun. And I mean, like, I think you guys mentioned uh, Althingi and like our trip to Althingi was a cultural trip. I mean, it's the sign of the, it's like the area of the first government meeting. And when I went there, I was enthralled by the fact that you could see multiple lava flows. They were just stacked on top of each other. And like, if you just look at it, it looks like a wall of rock. If you're in the know and have a little explanation of what's going on, you can actually see that the rocks are subtly different and stacked on top of each other and show that like the lavas actually flowed across this area and were cut by the rivers and glaciers that we can go sit in and like, you know, the clear water of all thingy that cut the wall rocks and expose these beautiful basalt flows. And I thought that was a cool thing to take away besides the fact that it's just cool for uh, a cultural history standpoint. Yeah. All thingy was such a cool mixing of cultural significance and then geological significance. And I think if you go there without one of the two perspectives, you miss out. Right. So most people there, all the signs and, you know, you learn about the cultural aspect. But if you're not also aware of the geological aspect, it doesn't tie in as nicely as it could if you bring both perspectives. And then you certainly helped all of us there have that perspective while we were at All Thingy. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say that. And uh, just to add to All Thingy uh, is even as when you walk there, like, obviously, it's great that you can explain the scientifics behind it. But like, I know for myself, I'm sure you guys can express it as well. But like, as soon as you walk up to that edge, it's like, yeah, I, I understand why this was the spot 
Like I totally get why this was mm. that, that focal point. And yeah, yeah, it's super neat that there's actual scientific reasoning and truth to show kind of some of that beauty because it was a changing experience for sure. Yeah, you're so right, Owen. It makes me wonder like how much how much of an impact the physical landscape has on like what we humans do, right? Like why did they choose that spot, right? It just so happened to maybe be very moving to them as it is to us now visiting it and how much of an impact that had on, you know, the things they were doing there. It's very fascinating to think about. Now, maybe this is a good segue tying into the cultural aspect. Eric, you also uh, illuminated for me that uh, dynamic of people leaving Iceland around like the 40s to 60s, I guess like the last wave of emigration uh, from Iceland. I was mainly just aware of the earlier emigration waves uh, based on my own family history. Um, So I'd be curious for you to share more on just the understanding that you gained about that time period with folks leaving Iceland. Yeah, so I think one of the big things that I took away from the Snorri trip that was not scientific whatsoever was actually my grandmother's history in leaving Iceland. And I think I was uh, one of the only people on the Snorri trip but that had had a grandmother leave during this time or a family member leave through this time. I think everyone else was you know, sort of immigrated from the farms or was displaced in some sort, shape or form. But my grandmother left relatively recently. Uh, she left in the 60s. And during that time, there was a lot of turmoil in social dynamics of Iceland. Iceland rapidly grew and got equated to Western world very, very fast, especially around the time of the war. And in doing so, in the 40s, the British uh, came over and established a base on Iceland during World War II. I've read the numbers on this, and the British, the number of men stationed on Iceland was the same number of Icelandic men on the island. And that was very hard because they're culturally very different. And so it was frowned upon for women to interact with the British soldiers. Uh, statewide and uh, just culturally, just people were like, these people are different. Let's you know keep to our culture. And then it kind of died down when the Brits left. And then in the 1950s, during the Cold War, the U.S. took over the base and established a presence there. And again, this uh, distaste for foreign men kind of arose again. Um, and a lot of it came from just conversations with people. I learned about this just by asking people what had happened. And it's a history that everyone welcomes, which in like we'll talk about. And that's not you can't say that for a lot of areas of the Western world. There are a lot of parts of history that, you know, our side of the US doesn't talk about, Canada doesn't talk about. But the Icelanders very open about it. And it's this thing called the situation or Ostenthith uh, or I can't ever pronounce it well. But the situation was a time period where Icelandic women were, um, it was not seen in a positive light for them to interact with Western men, so American men. And my grandmother was born in the 1940s. And then in the late 1960s, kind of at the tail end of this situation, met an American man, a soldier stationed there, and ended up immigrating from Iceland and essentially left everyone behind and communicated with just her mom because it was kind of frowned upon at that time. It wasn't as 
a rough situation that it was in previous years, but it was still not the best light. And so when she was over in the US with this American man who is not my grandfather, they had a relationship and um, she only talked to her mom. So she didn't really talk to her friends or anything like that. And that culture kind of uh, died down a little bit. She still spoke Icelandic with her mom and learned about things. But then she left that man and married my grandfather. And the culture just wasn't there too much. She really tried to integrate into the U.S. society. She learned from reading. She learned English from reading tabloids. And so she found different ways to learn English and but still used Icelandic with her mom and learned about the culture and things like that. Um, and so what I didn't have this Icelandic background connection. I didn't know the cultural things. It just wasn't a thing for me growing up. I learned about uh, the Icelandic heritage and Snorri through my dad, who was really, he really wanted to get invested in this. And during COVID, had the time to learn the language. And uh, when he was learning the language, he found out about Snorri. I talked to my grandmother about it and she's like, oh yes, that sounds like a great experience. You should go do it. And so then I went over and found out all these things that I had no idea. So I meant like surrounded by all these people that had a relationship with the culture and that really bolstered it for me. And I just, I thought that was a great thing to learn about, learn about this history, something that my grandmother really doesn't talk about because it's frankly hard to talk about. Like she left her country and um, yeah, but she's since visited back, made new connections, has her friends. But yeah, it's not, uh, it wasn't a side of the family that I knew too well. And now I feel like I do because of Snorri. So has that opened up any conversations since you've been back? I know you spoke with your grandmother quite a bit while you were there. What kind of conversations did you have while you were there? What kind of conversations have you been having since? It was uh, really funny. We took the, you guys remember the language classes and everything. And we learned how to ask, how are you? And how are things going? So I'd, I'd call her and be like, Farsay thu. And she'd be like, oh, it's so amazing. You know how to ask how I am. And then like, you know, that'd be the extent of my Icelandic. <laughs> um, but uh, we would, that was pretty much, it was just so nice to talk about all these things in Reykjavik because she grew up in Reykjavik proper, like uh, essentially uh, right by the government building, I think, my my great grandfather owned a bakery that was right on the main, uh, you know that I can't remember the waterway that's right in the center of the city, but um, yeah, essentially right there. We and so I walked by it all the time. It's now a bank, but yeah, she was in Reykjavik proper, so all these things are still there, and I could talk about it with her and be like, oh, I went to this place, I went to this place, I went to this place, and she's like, oh, that's so great. And so that was a lot of it was being able to actually connect with her on a deeper level that you really can't connect with someone on unless you've been there you've seen it you've been a part of it and so that was really nice uh totally and uh i guess since you've been back have you uh have you thought about going back for any kind of geological things this time that since you've done more of a cultural journey this time or uh what what's it been like since you've been back so i have uh i have been in touch with a couple faculty at penn state that uh have some icelandic projects I can now be like, hey, I know enough Icelandic to kind of get us around and are capable and I'm capable of learning Icelandic and know localities. Um, so I'm trying to get to be a field hand to go back and collect rocks. Uh, and I've written a couple proposals now that have hopefully will get funded for me to go back on science money's dollar. Uh, so we'll see if those get funded. If so, I'll go back. But I am starting to make plans with my fiance to go back and bring her to the island and show her what's up. Yeah, that'd be a good honeymoon spot. 
No doubt. I've uh, I've told everyone that uh, I'm going to bring my fiance back and my host families were all very excited to meet her. Yeah, I said the same. I, uh, I'm hoping the same too, but that's a good plan. Um, I'm just thinking there, I guess I have a couple of questions. If you could go back to uh, when we had our geology lecture at university on the story program, that was very eye-opening to me. And I know you were highly engaged with that lecture as well. If you could maybe just off the top of your head, summarize some key points just in sort of an intro to geology of Iceland or things that really piqued your interest there, maybe that you already knew or reinstilled. In addition to that, just based on the future and maybe you potentially doing geological work in Iceland, what is like one big mystery that science still has to uncover in terms of Icelandic geology or maybe geology broadly speaking? That's sort of a bigger question, but do with those what you will. Those are some great questions. Uh, So for the geology lecture that we had, I thought that was a great introductory lesson into geology and what it is and how like Iceland exemplifies all these different geologic features. And what stood out to me, not only was the breadth, but really the idea of equilibrium that Iceland is under. Iceland sits atop a divergent boundary. It sits atop the locality where two tectonic plates, giant pieces of the Earth's crust are actually separating. And those are separating at essentially the rate that our fingernails grow, um, which is insane that those move a couple millimeters a year. Like if you stood on the beach for a whole year and held the GPS in your hand, you would see that your GPS position moves ever so slightly, but you do move. But the ground that you're standing on at the edge of Iceland, probably a black sand beach of some sort or a cliff, that ground is getting eroded away at exactly the same rate as the spreading. So the island itself in the center is spreading apart and becoming further apart from each other, but the edges are being eroded. And so Iceland will stay relatively the same size for the entire time that it's there. And I thought that idea of equilibrium was really cool. And it also relates to the idea of the land of fire and ice. The volcanoes are situated under glaciers. And so you have this hot rock that goes up into this cold ice, and that actually creates a unique geologic phenomenon where you actually form a special kind of granite. The same kind of rock that makes your countertops is actually formed from that interaction from lava and water. And what actually happens is as the glaciers melt, you get more volcanic activity. And as you get as you get more ice, you get less volcanic activity. Those are actually intertwined. The weight of the glaciers actually control how much volcanism is happening on Iceland, which is a really unique thing, and you don't see that in many places just because there's not many places that have volcanic activity and glaciers. So yeah, I thought what really struck me was just the amount of things that are in equilibrium in Iceland, and that's what really what makes it so special and why you can study so many different areas of geology in one, frankly, small area. As for the things that we don't know that could be studied on Iceland, I think the best part about being in a PhD program is you learn all of the things that we don't know, and it's immense. It's just, there's so many things we don't know that are taught in an introductory geology class, especially because geology is a relatively young science. I mean, my grandmother left Iceland before plate tectonics became a theory. People would look at a map and see, oh, Africa looks like it could fit in South America. And people would just kind of laugh and be like, oh, yeah, of course, totally. That's, yeah. And 
but actually that's what happened. They split apart and same thing. Iceland is splitting apart. And that theory came about in the seventies, a testament to, we don't know a lot. Um, but really I think the granite question on Iceland, Iceland is effectively hot mantle. Mantle is a very magnesium iron rich rock. So that rock down there is, has a lot of magnesium and iron. The crust, what we stand on, what our continents are on is very rich in aluminum and sodium and potassium. So since Iceland is just mantle coming up, there's not a lot of crust. There should be a lot of magnesium and iron in those rocks. However, we still find these rocks all over Iceland that are rich in aluminum, sodium, and potassium. And for that to happen, there needs to be some sort of continental process, some sort of process that happens on the continents has to be happening on Iceland. And we don't fully understand how that's happening. How in the world are we getting the granites, so the same kind of granites that you see in the Sierra Nevadas in California, in uh, the Cascades, uh, in the Andes Mountains, all over these, all these places where you see true granites, you are finding similar rocks on Iceland, and no one has a good grasp on how that's happening. And so I think that's one of the big processes that I want to go after, is how are we getting these unique rocks on Iceland? Yeah, wow, that's very cool. A lot of enlightening stuff. And I'll admit my ignorance here. I didn't understand so much. I got the gist of, I think there's a pun in there too, right? Gist? I got the gist of uh, plate tectonics. You just kind of pick it up going through grade school, really. But I never understood the history of it and how new of a theory it was until being in Iceland. And I think a lot of conversations with you, Eric. So that has been a enlightening um, thing that I've learned from from this experience with Iceland as well. Was there anything really surprising to you as far as geology goes? Like, was there anything that you weren't expecting when you first came? So I think one of the surprising things in Iceland was just how integrated Iceland was with the geology. Like, I think most of the time in most of the places that we all live, it's just kind of like, you know, the streets on a grassy plain, the buildings are on this flat ground. Occasionally you kind of build into the hills and stuff like that. You blast a road through the hills. But Iceland, they build around the geology. The roads go around the volcanoes. We don't, you don't really see roads that cut through the geology. Everything usually follows a river or follows something that has already been happened. And I think that's probably the biggest surprise to me is like you'll see volcanic lava flows on the side of the road. The road follows the lava flow. The road doesn't go over the lava flow or through or through the flow. It follows it. And I think, you know, you'll end up with a lot of weird road maps in Iceland and just kind of like, why are we turning here? And without being able to look to the outside the window and be like, oh, that's because we're going around a lava flow or going around a crater or going over what used to be a river or something like that, then... I think that's something that might be hidden when people visit Iceland is there's a lot of integration with the geology. There's uh, something to be said for uh, some like natural architecture of Iceland as well. They certainly style their buildings much more, um, much more in touch with nature and the earth, it would seem, especially compared to North America anyway, in that sense. Yeah, there's probably an aspect too of being limited in the amount of space they have too. So here we can negotiate more with the rocks. We can just build a city elsewhere if it's not working out 
Whereas in Iceland, they kind of just have to build around what they have. Now, I know Iceland itself as a country in terms of its human history is very young, right? Around the year 900, humans first arrived on Iceland. How old or young is Iceland as a country in geological terms? So I always, this is a hard scale to put into perspective, but Iceland is about, I think most estimates have it at like 10 million years old, maybe a bit longer. You'd have to fact check, fact check me on that. My zircons, so the mineral that you can actually analyze and get an age from, the minerals that I analyze are about 7 million years old. So that's fairly early in Icelandic history. That, uh, in the grand scheme of things, the Earth is 4.56 billion years old. So that's 4,560 million years old. That's a pretty large number compared to 10 million. So in the grand scheme of things... uh, Would you say if the Earth was a face, that Iceland would merely be just a pimple that has shown up? (laughs) I think that's a pretty accurate description. Uh, I don't think it compares on time scale, but I think that... With all the volcanoes and stuff, it would be fitting. <laughs> nice. Good. Glad I'm, glad I'm getting the gist. <laughs> okay. Somewhat got it. It's very hard to think in geological timeframes. It's something I've been trying to work on more. I got to ask you, Eric, I've been trying to get a consensus with other people, but are you pronouncing it epic or epochs? I'm one that pronounces it as epic. Okay. Is there quite a bit of fluctuation with how people pronounce that? I think it's an international fluctuation. So I think most US people will say epic, but I think epoch is. Do you recall how the Icelanders were pronouncing it in English? I don't. I don't. Couldn't say. Yeah. Okay. So I have an interesting question for you here in terms of epochs or epics of, I guess, what, what would you say? A geological epic? Yeah. Okay. There was the Holocene, which is the most recent epoch or epic. And then, according, depending on who you talk to, we're currently in the Anthropocene, which is an interesting distinction because if you're going with that um, perspective, then my ancestors actually emigrated and left Iceland in a different epoch than yours did, being in the Holocene versus the Anthropocene. So, Eric, I'm interested in your perspective on the Anthropocene. It's an interesting concept in geology and in science and, I guess, just ecology in in general. So, what do you think about the Anthropocene? Okay. So, the Anthropocene is a bit contentious across geologic disciplines. Uh, A lot of people say the Holocene is not long enough to be considered an epic, therefore cutting it up. Like the Holocene has not been going on long enough to be a geologic epoch. So it needs to keep going. Therefore, we can't cut it off with the Anthropocene. However, a lot of geologic epochs are distinguished by geologically relevant events, stuff we can see in the fossil record, stuff we can see in the chemical record, stuff we can see in the rock record, simply just like what rocks are present, which ones are not. And something that we can see in the geologic record is the development of uh, nuclear technologies. So isotopes, uh, uranium isotopes, cesium isotopes, all these things that are anthropogenically man-made 
in the rock record. We can see these different isotopes present in soils, in the water, in ice cores. And that will be a distinguishing characteristic a thousand years from now, a million years from now, of when nuclear technologies came to be. Therefore, it's in the geologic rock record now. That's a geologic change. And so I think that is a fine distinction between the Holocene and Anthropocene is that like 1940s period. Um, That's up for debate and that's just my opinion. But yeah, I think that's a unique observation that your ancestors would have left in the Holocene. Mine would have left in the Anthropocene. So as someone coming in here now who knows nothing about an epoch or an epic, what I'm getting at as a gist here is it's like a chapter of Earth's formations and movements. And like you're saying a man-made element could be the change that moves into another chapter. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, good. Yeah, I can read a little definition here. This is something that I've been interested in a lot lately. And you will hear about this, like watching, say, a David Attenborough documentary. And it's just kind of highlighting the fact that humans have a impact on the earth. And so one definition could be the Anthropocene is a proposed geological epoch that reflects the impact of human activity on the Earth's geology and ecosystems. The term Anthropocene is derived from the Greek word anthropos. So it's like anthropology, right? Meaning human. And then scene, I guess, is the suffix used to denote a geological epoch. And yeah, I thought it was interesting to bring it in here. First of all, I wanted Eric's perspective because not everyone agrees that we're in a new epic that we're still in the Holocene. Um, but then also, if we are accepting that we're in a new geological epic, it is interesting to make that distinction in terms of what time periods people emigrated from Iceland if they left during the Holocene or in the Anthropocene. And then it also makes me think about the future as well in terms of, well, just, I guess, in terms of human culture, geology, and, uh, perhaps emigration and immigration. Interesting to think about all these things. So thank you for your insight on that, Eric. Happy to provide a little more on the science side. Now, what is the gist with the gist? Is there not a pun? There's a geology pun with that, right? So the geology pun there is a metamorphic rock is a schist. That's a, that's uh. a name of a metamorphic rock. Um, so normally we say the schist of it. <laughs> Or that's the schist. <laughs> Do you have a favorite pun yes. that came Excellent. out of the Iceland trip? I need to know. <laughs> out of the Icelandic trip? Oh, that was... Uh, you'd have to give me a little bit to think on it. Um, Follow-up question. What was the average amount of pilsers eaten by you per day? I think I achieved a one pilser per day, which is interesting because pilsir is the only word in the Icelandic language that you don't need to clarify what you're asking for when you go and order. You can just say one. I want one. And everyone will know that you're talking about pilsir. Can you talk at all about hmm. the order of condiments on the hot dog? Because I know that's up for debate as well. And I know you researched that a little bit, did you not? So I, while I was on the trip, it was essentially a five-week break of doing research 
And so I got to the end of it and I needed to scratch the itch. And so I did a deep dive into the history of Pilsner. I also did an experimental study on what was the best way to apply the condiments. And this is regionally specific. So if you're in Reykjavik, you apply condiments differently than you're, if you're in, say, Akureyri or if you're on the east side. And so I thought that was so crazy. My specific way of applying, and I think most of the snorries that I helped apply the condiments would agree, is that you put the remoulade on the side, on the, usually the left side or the right side. Then you add the brown mustard side. And so you have those on two opposing sides. Pilsernip. That's the third. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, the pilsernip. And so you add that on the right side. So you have the remoulade on left side, pilsernip on the right side. And then you add ketchup in a squiggling formation, left to right, all across the top. And then you sprinkle the onions, the fried onions on top. And I think that gives you the best. Each bite will then have all three sauces and a little bit of fried onions on it. And the fried onions won't fall off because they're sticking to the ketchup. And so that's practiced on, you know, take, well, how many days were you there? Like 40, like 35. So that's, uh, that's over probably about 40 pilsers eaten by myself. And multiply that by our experiments. And as I have to say in Eastlandsker, your combination was perfect. Thank you. Thank you. I did my best. I uh, I thought I gave a pretty good presentation at the end of the, the Snorri program. Yeah, just for some background for our listeners, um, at the end of our program, we have to present on a topic of our choice. And of course, Eric did not choose geology, even though there was plenty of topics that he could have chosen. He chose hot dogs, so which we all enjoyed. I think I shared a pilsner with every single one of the snorries throughout the trip. So it was a big community building activity for me. I can relate because I shared about my ice cream experience and it was the same with me. So Icelandic food brings us together. Yeah, there's two things that Icelanders, maybe three things that Icelanders really come together around. And that is hot dogs, pilsa, rocks, geology, and then just humans, culture. I think those three things are the unifying forces that make Iceland such a great country. Beautiful. Basalt, Eric. Tell us about basalt columns. This is like a common thing that a lot of tourists go and look at in Iceland. Could you give us a little bit of a geologist perspective on basalt columns? So I think basalt columns were one of the th- geologic things I was most excited to go see in Iceland. Uh, call it geotourism. Um these are one of those things that they teach in textbooks. It's a weathering phenomenon. Uh, essentially, the basalt is a cooled lava. Uh, the lava comes up from the ground and vertically and spreads out. And it Iceland's temperature differentials between uh, day and night and season, because these are cooling over like a factor of months to weeks, um, is that the heating and cooling throughout that cooling process actually creates these hexagonal shapes in the basalt flow. So this lava flow creates hexagonal shapes. And it's actually up for debate how that happens, if that happens after it cools and the rock breaks apart on those fractures and then gets eroded and it get very clean columns, or if it's during the cooling process. The hard part about it is you can't replicate it with experiments. So people have tried heating and cooling melted rock and they can't form basalt columns. So it might be a time thing as well. Yeah, so these hexagonal columns of basalt, they're 
practically perfect. They're sheer sides, very flat, and almost uh, you can measure it, and it's almost a perfect equilateral hexagon. And a lot of that actually just comes from the mineral scale. So the minerals crystallize in these hexagonal patterns out to the rocks, and the rocks crystallize in hexagonal patterns, and then the structures are hexagonal patterns. And so you get this really unique feature, and people aren't totally sure how it happens. But I think I buy the heating and cooling because you're as you're cooling it, it's becoming smaller. If you're heating it, it becomes bigger, and you can create those fractures similar to how you'd break like you know ice breaking a concrete walkway or something like that. Yeah, interesting. And the structures they create certainly do make for stunning sights. And I guess, like you said, good geotourism, another one of the many cool things. Would you say they're most commonly found in Iceland? Um, Those formations? You can find them pretty much anywhere you have basalt flows, but you have to have this weird, I think you have to have this weird temperature gradient. Now, we don't have good constraints on the temperature gradients throughout, like, you know, millions of years yeah. ago. Um, but, I mean, uh -huh. you can find them. I've seen them in Seattle. Hmm. And I know there are certain places in the western U.S. Mm -hmm. um, but I think Iceland, they're easily accessible. Right. They used to use it as a building material. Oh. And now it's too expensive. And <laughs> they're actually using it. Uh, that's the shape of the Opera House. The Opera House is designed after basalt columns. Yeah, Harpa. Good old Harpa. Yes. Well, uh, I just want to be the first to say I know you guys will have something to add as well. But Eric, thank you, uh, first and foremost, for spending the time to talk to us today. Uh, not only about Snorri, but geology, the culture, and uh, yeah, joining the whole Icelandic roots thing. Hot dogs. And hot dogs. Absolutely. Uh, thanks again. And uh, yeah, I uh, hope that we can one day either meet in Iceland or uh, find a spot here at some point soon, because uh, it would be great to catch up again. And uh, yeah, thanks. I really enjoyed having time to sit and talk to you guys. It was a genuine pleasure. And I think my favorite pun, although it's a little lame, it plays off of a bit of an inside joke between some of the snorries, is Owen likes to say his last night was electric. And I think one of my favorite puns was one time saying last night was volcanic. And so I think I'm going to end on that because it's a bit sentimental to me. <laughs> I love that. It was uh, certainly a crazy night staying up until whenever in the sunrise on our very last day on the island. And it was uh, incredible. <laughs> Volcanic is what I'll start saying. Eric, if um, our listeners want to learn more about geology in general, where, where can you send them? What's a good resource? So actually, great question. My advisor at Penn State, Jesse Reimink, runs a podcast called Planet Geo. And I'm pretty sure it's available on all your podcasting uh wherever your podcasts are stored. So that's a great way to learn introductory geology across from plate tectonics to neodymium and magnets. So it's a great way to get a little more information about geology. Cool. Planet Geology, we'll also link it in the description. Folks can click on that and find the podcast there. That's a wrap for this episode of the Icelandic Roots Podcast, where we were joined with Eric, our fellow Snorri and resident geologist. Iceland's geology is the bedrock of its culture, and it's no wonder it's a hot spot for geology enthusiasts. We hope that you gained a deeper appreciation for geology and Iceland as a fascinating country it is. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to tune in to our next episode where we'll continue to delve into the heart of Icelandic culture. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and register for our newsletter for updates and new episodes. Talk for you for listening. Flot, flot, that was beautiful.